Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. We are now back into the Gospel of John as we walk through that. And we're uh, in John chapter 11, picking up where we left off. Verse 45, right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And we'll be finishing this chapter, 45 through 57. Starting with the 45th verse of the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest Jesus. O Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that are true and the promises that you keep. Thank you, Father, that we can rest in confidence in the death of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, the taking of our place, that Jesus did. But Lord, we thank you that we can also not just be forgiven, not just have our sins washed away. And if you'd have done that, it would have been enough. We thank you, Father, for that, but we also thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that unites us with you and we get to enter into fellowship and joy with you and not just be made even, but be made whole. And I pray, Lord, during this time that we have left this morning, that your spirit would be at work here, opening up the eyes of our hearts to see and to hear what we need to see and hear from you this morning, so that your name is glorified and our souls are exalted. And we give you thanks for what you have done and what you're going to do, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a couple of things here. Verse 45, I'll, I'll come back to verse 45. 
but I would like to uh, start out by looking at some of these other verses here, specifically the part about Caiaphas and his, well, actually, okay, I'm going to make this short. I promise I'm going to make this short. You had some who watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and their first instinct is to run tell the Pharisees? I mean, what snoveling snitches? My indi- Okay, I'm going to keep my indignation of these fools relatively short. I mean, you just watched Jesus raise a man from the dead who's been dead four days. He ain't just been dead of four hours. He's been dead four days. And you watched him raise this man, Lazarus, out of the grave. And your response is to run tell the Pharisees? Like, hey, hey, you won't believe what Jesus did now. Oh, come on. I mean, see, I'm just in that indignant state of mind towards these fools that like hell has no place good enough for them. Which is why Jesus is in charge of the eternal state of individuals and not me. So apart from that little irritation, we come to this part about how the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Caiaphas the high priest actually respond to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And they go, for what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Hello? Exactly the question, what are you supposed to do when you see a man who performs many signs and does everything the Messiah says he's supposed to do? Maybe you should, like, maybe you should believe in him? I mean, did that thought ever cross your mind? To actually believe in him? (sighs) Sorry, I just... Apparently not. Apparently they don't think this thought at all. Which is like, how? How can you even ask the question, what are we to do, and not have the thought, believe in him? Well, in part the answer is because they are following their father, not the father. They have given themselves over to that which has consumed them. And it has consumed them so much that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days. And the thought of believing in him doesn't even cross their minds. But Caiaphas, Caiaphas, uh, the high priest, then makes this stunning statement here in verse 49 and 50. You know nothing at all, which shows a little bit about his own arrogance and mean spirit when he looks at all the other guys. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, John rightly interprets what this is in the following verses, that he was unwittingly prophesying 
that Jesus was going to die in place of the people. And John also adds this very important part. Not only for the nation, but also for all the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, I'm going to, I want to, I'm going to walk through, there's a, this cord of Jesus's substitutionary death. This cord is throughout the entire of scripture. And I'm going to go chronologically backwards. John writes these words in AD 90. 30 years previously, the apostle Paul writes these words from the book of Romans. So if you want, turn you in your Bible to Romans chapter 3. And um, we'll, for, we'll start with verse 23, that verse that's well known because it's part of the Romans road for salvation. So, Romans three twenty three, For you all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus' death, he was a substitute for each of us. And that because he was a substitute for each of us by his death on the cross, that big word, that big scary word in verse 25, propitiation, means satisfied. Jesus' death satisfied all the requirements for God's justice because of our rebellion against him, both individually and when we do it as a group, part of a group. And so now we see this idea of substitutionary atonement, big fat, big, big words, big set of words, that just means he takes the place of us to pay the full price so that we are no longer in debt to God, the Father, for our disobedience against him. So John writes the words that we just read in the gospel in 90 AD. Paul writes these words in about 60, 57 or so to 60 AD. However, the idea of substitutionary atonement was not a New Testament idea, and it was not something that Paul and the Apostle John created. We can even go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 6, to see it. And this one's important. I want you to turn your Bibles to chapter 22 of Genesis. This is hugely important. I should have pre-marked my Bible. 
So I'm going to read verses 6 through 18 just for the sake of time. And this is where Abraham takes Isaac on, on top of Mount Moriah. And I, okay, listen, this passage is just dripping with the foreshadowing of Jesus. Okay. So I want you to think about the narratives of Jesus' crucifixion and then look for the places where, oh, that's a hint. Jesus is going to do that. So verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both went on together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Did you catch the allusions to Jesus? Isaac carries the wood on his back. Jesus carries the cross on his back. But here's a more subtle one. Did you catch... Abraham and his son went up together to the top of the mount. Jesus was not alone when he climbed the hill of Calvary. He and his father walked up that hill together. Now, of course, we know that on the cross at the greatest, most intense moment, the father turned his back and his eyes away, and Jesus was fully abandoned to carry and bear the full weight of sin. 
but he was never alone until that very second. Just as Abraham and Isaac walked up Mount Moriah together, so also the father and the son walked up Calvary. And just as a side note, there's many who think Mount Moriah and Calvary are the exact same spot. They went together. And then notice Abraham's promise. Look Abraham's look at Abraham's phenomenal faith in this moment. He knows he's been told to sacrifice Isaac. And when Isaac asks about, hey, there's no lamb here, there's just wood, fire, and me, Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. He provided Jesus. And then when they get up there and they're on the altar and he reaches back with his knife in his hand and is about to slaughter Isaac, it is the angel of the Lord that speaks to him from heaven, right? He speaks to him from heaven. Abraham, stop. Don't do anything like this. Notice the language here. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Do you get this? The angel of the Lord all of a sudden claims to be God. He is saying, you didn't withhold your son from me. Now that immediately, I don't know for you, but immediately raises the question, who is, who is this angel? Who is this speaking? This is God the Father saying, I know what you are willing to do for me. And now I'm going to give a substitute. Of course, in that moment, the substitute is the ram standing behind Abraham. But ultimately, that substitute is Jesus himself. Do you get the imagery of this substitution? Jesus is substituted for Isaac. Although it doesn't physically occur as Jesus as the substitute for Isaac for another eight centuries, give or take a couple centuries. God provides the substitute for Isaac. But then God goes forward another step. God the Father takes one additional step and makes this stunning, shocking promise. He's going to bless Abraham and give him offspring like the stars. And in your offspring, you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And before that, he will, your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. If I have time, I want to come back to that one. But in the offspring, your, all the nations will be blessed. And what is it that John says? All the nations are gathered to him. What is it that the psalmist says in Psalm 97? Let the nations be glad. Why would the nations be glad? Why on earth would the nations be glad when they're excluded according to the Mosaic law? Because it's not the Mosaic law that they're supposed to be glad about. It's the Abrahamic covenant 
that causes the nations to be glad. Because in through the Abrahamic covenant, we are made the people of God. And it finds its fulfillment in Christ's substitutionary death on a cross for us. But the idea of this cord of substitutionary atonement goes back even further than this moment with Abraham and Isaac. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is after God confronts Adam and Eve. And they start blame shifting. And so he starts talking to the serpent. And says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between her offspring and your offspring. And he, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Even here, the seeds of substitutionary atonement are given. And here we see the beginning of a three-stranded cord that winds its way throughout the entirety of Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit begin making the promise of a substitutionary atoner. And at each step in the progressive revelation of God's wonderful gift of salvation and redemption, we see a little more. We start out with just this idea that's really kind of hard to get a feel for what it really means in Genesis three fifteen. Then we step forward into Genesis 22 where Abraham and Isaac are on top of Mount Moriah and we get more of a vision and understanding of what this promise is and how it works. And then we get to the Gospel of John and Matthew, Mark and Luke, and we see this this Savior, this person who is clearly beyond, beyond any shadow of a doubt, the Son of God, the only Son of God. And He is given in place of us. And then the realization is, reaches its full-blown understanding that he took our place so that we could be with him. And of course, its ultimate fulfillment occurs at the end of Revelation, at the end of time, when the marriage supper of the Lamb is made complete and we are there and it is good. It is really good in that moment. And we can know that because he promises it to us and keeps his promises. The promise of all who believe in faith that Jesus died for them will enjoy that gift. But just as in the promise in Genesis 22 was not just that all the nations would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham, there was an additional promise that makes this and makes his substitutionary atonement even sweeter. If you go back, you look, what does it say there in 22, 16? Uh, 17, sorry. 
I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring. These are all singular offspring too. And your singular offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. I'm sorry, this is just too good to not give it to you. Even though it's kind of not exactly in the line of the cord of substitutionary atonement that strings throughout all of the scripture, it's just too good. He will give, you will possess, he will shall possess the gates of his enemies. Now go to Matthew chapter 16. I'm not here to just like professorally teach you the scriptures. This is like, I get goosebumps. This is like, I start to shake and vibrate. It's so good. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of his confession of Jesus as the Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, many of you know that that statement that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that that statement, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, is not defensive. The church isn't locked in behind the gates like it helms deep in the Lord of the Rings. We're not locked in behind the gates like the Romans with the coming hordes from the north. No, this is offensive. The church is attacking and assailing the gates of hell for the purpose of kicking them in and going in and taking prisoners. Well, actually setting prisoners free. It's offensive. This is possessing the gates of hell. This is Jesus's church possessing the gates of his enemy. This is the part, this is the idea, this is where the fulfillment of verse 17 in Genesis 22 comes to fruition. And every time we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and declare salvation in his name, we are kicking open the gates of hell and taking prisoners out of jail. This is what it means to possess the gates of your enemy. This is what it means to possess the gates of God the Father's enemy. And it is where we live and exercise the power he has given us through the Holy Spirit for the joy of our salvation and for others. This, this is the good stuff. This is the good stuff. And 
It is also the same moment of possessing the gates of the enemy from John chapter 11. If you want to turn back there, this is where we come back to verse 45 in John chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is possessing the gates of his enemy, the enemy of death. Jesus displaying his divine personhood as the second person of the Trinity and people believing in him is possessing the gates of his enemy. And it's not just metaphorically that he's doing this in the gates of his enemies of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because Bethany's less than two miles from the eastern and northern gates of the temple complex. He is like a marching general's army taking ground one piece by at a time, one piece at a time, until he possesses the gates of his enemies at the temple itself. However, there's this small interlude between Jesus marching right up to the edges of the temple and possessing the gates of his enemy and actually doing it. And that little interlude is the time between his resurrection and the time of his return where he lands on top of Mount of Olives. Kidron Valley is split in two and he walks through the eastern gate of the temple and now, brothers and sisters, on that day, he now possesses the gates of his enemy. Because we all know who possesses that part of the temple complex today. And they are definitely his enemy. And it is on that day, on that glorious day of his return, when he walks through the eastern gate, and he now possesses everything. And the enemy got nothing. He ain't got nothing. Live in today hoping for that day. O oh Lord, who is sufficient for these things? We, we, we are so below this kind of a gift. But yet you give it to us anyway, Father. Against the enemy of our despair, disappointment, and hopelessness, let us possess the gate of our enemies with joy and delight and hope. In Jesus' name. Amen.